Section 17 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825 to 1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S. S. Kim, Manikdebaisho, Portugal. Chapter 20 the inner life of Russian Jewry during the reign of Alexander II, Part Two, Four, the Jews and the revolutionary movement. The Russian school and literature pushed the Jewish college youth head over heels into the intellectual current of progressive Russian society. Naturally enough, a portion of the Jewish youth was also drawn into the revolutionary movement of the 70s, a movement which, in spite of the theoretic materialism of its adepts, was of an essentially idealistic tendency. In joining the ranks of the revolutionaries, the young Jews were less actuated by resentment against the continued, though somewhat mitigated, rightlessness of their own people than by discontent with the general political reaction in Russia, that discontent which found expression in the movements of populism of going to the people and similar currents then in vogue. Jewish students attending the rabbinical and teachers' institutes of the government were autodidacts from among former Heder and Yeshua pupils also began to go to the people the Russian people, to be sure, not the Jewish. They carried on a revolutionary propaganda, both by direct and indirect means, among the Russian peasants and workingmen, known to them only from books. It was taken for granted at the time that the realization of the ideals of Russian democracy would carry with it the solution of Jewish as well as of all other sectional problems of Russian life, so that these problems might for the moment be safely set aside. As far as the Jewish youth was concerned, the whole movement was doubly academic for the only points of contact of that youth with younger Russia was not living reality, but the book, Problems of the Intellect, The Search for New Ways, the attempt to work out a Weltanschauung. The fundamental article of faith of the Jewish socialists was cosmopolitanism, and they failed to discern in Russian populism the underlying elements of a Russian national movement. Jewry was not believed to be a nation, and as a religious entity, it was looked upon as a relic of the past, which was doomed to disappearance. One attempt of coupling socialism with Judaism ought not to be passed over in silence. In the beginning of the 70s, there exists in Vilna a Jewish revolutionary circle made up principally of the pupils of the rabbinical school and of the teachers' institute of the same city. In 1875, the police tracked the members of the circle. Some were arrested, others escaped. One of the refugees, A. Lieberman, managed to reach London 
where he associated with the circle of Lavrov and the editors of the revolutionary journal Biferoid. Forward. In the following year, Lieberman founded in London the League of Jewish Socialists for the purpose of carrying on a propaganda among the Jewish masses. It was a small society of students and workingmen which busied itself with arranging lectures and debates and penning Hebrew appeals on the need of organizing the proletariat. The society was soon dissolved and Lieberman emigrated to Vienna, where, under the name of Freeman, he started in 1877 a socialistic magazine in Hebrew under the name Ha-Imet, The Truth. The first two issues of Ha-Imet were admitted into Russia, but the third was confiscated by the censor. The magazine had to be discontinued. It yielded its place to a paper called Asefat Hakamim, the Assembly of Wise Men, published in Königsberg in 1878 by M. Binchevsky as a supplement to paper Hakol, The Voice, which was issued there by Lodkinson. Soon, this whole species of socialistic literature was put out of existence. In 1879, Lieberman in Vienna and his comrades in Berlin and Königsberg were arrested and expelled from the borders of Austria and Prussia. They emigrated to England and America and lost touch with Russia. In Russia itself, the Jewish revolutionaries were heart and soul devoted to the cause. The children of the ghetto displayed considerable heroism and self-sacrifice in the revolutionary upheaval of the 70s. Jews figured in all important political trials and public manifestations. They languished in the jails and suffered as exiles in Siberia. But this idealistic fight for general freedom lacked a Jewish note, the endeavor to free their own nation, which lived in greater thraldom than any other. And no one at the time ever dreamt that after all these sacrifices, the Jews of Russia would be visited by still greater misfortunes, by pogroms and increased disabilities. 5. The Neo-Hebraic Renaissance With all deflections from the course of normal development, such as are unavoidable in times of violent mental disturbances, the main line of the whole cultural movement, the resultant of the various forces within it, was headed toward the healthy progress of Judaism. The most substantial product of this movement was the Neo-Hebraic literary renaissance, which had already appeared in faint outlines on the somber background of external oppression and internal obscurantism during the preceding period. The Haskalah, formerly anathematized, was now able to unfold all its creative powers. What in the time of Isaac Bear Levinson had been accomplished stealthily by a few isolated conspirators of enlightenment in some petty society in Vilna or in some out-of-the-way town like Kamenets Podolsky was now done in full light of the day. Instead of a few stray writers, the harbingers of the new literature, there now appeared this literature itself, 
new both in form and content. The restoration of the Hebrew language to its biblical purity and the removal of the linguistic excrescences of the later rabbinic idiom became for some writers an end itself, for others a weapon in the fight for the Enlightenment. Melitza, a conventionalized style which, moving strictly within the confines of the biblical diction, endeavored to adapt the form of an ancient language to the content of a modern life, became the fashion of the day. In point of content, rejuvenated Hebrew literature was of necessity elementary. Mental restlessness and naiveness of thought were not conducive to the development of that science of Judaism, which had attained to such luxurious growth in Germany. The Hebrew writers of Russia during that period had no means of propagating their ideas except through the medium of poetry, fiction, or journalism. The result of historic research was squeezed into the mold of a poem or a novel, or it furnished the material for a press article in which the Jewish past was considered from the point of view of the present. Objective scientific investigation could find no place, and the little that was accomplished in that direction did not bear the character of a living account of the past, but was rather in the nature of crude archaeological material. At the same time, as the crest of the social progress was rising, the borderline between poetry and fiction, on the one hand, and topical journalism on the other, was gradually obliterated. The poet or novelist was often turned into a fighter who attacked the old order of things and defended the new. Even before the first blush of dawn, when everyone in Russia was yet groaning under the strokes of an autocratic tyranny, which the presentiment of its speed end had driven into madness, the beaching strains of the new Hebrew lyre resounded through Lithuania. They came from Mika Joseph Levinson, the son of Adam Levinson, author of high-flown Hebrew oath, a contemplative Jewish youth suffering from tuberculosis and Weltschmerz. He began his poetic career in 1840 by a Hebrew adaptation of the second book of Virgil's Aeneid, but soon turned to Jewish motives. In the musical rhymes of the Songs of Daughter of Zion, Shurebet Zion, Vilna, 1851, the author poured forth the anguish of his suffering soul, which was torn between faith and science, weighed down by the oppression from without, and stirred to its depths by the tragedy of his homeless nation. A cruel disease cut short the poet's life in 1852 at the age of 24. A small collection of lyrical poems, published after his death under the title Kinorubat Zion, the half of the daughter of Zion, exhibited even more brilliantly the wealth of creative energy which was hidden in the soul of this prematurely cut-off youth who, on the brink of the grave, sang so touchingly of love, beauty, and pure joys of life. The year after the death of our poet in 1853, there appeared in the same capital of Lithuania 
the historic novel Ahabat Zion, Love of Zion. Its author, Abraham Mapp of Kovno, 1808-1867, was a poor Melamed who had by his own endeavors and without the help of a teacher raised himself to the level of a modern Hebrew pedagogue. He lived in two worlds, in the Valley of Tears, such as the ghetto presented during the reign of Nicholas, and in the radiant recollections of the far-off biblical past. The inspired dreamer, while strolling on the banks of the Niemen along the hills which skirt the city of Kovno, was picturing to himself the luminous dawn of the Jewish nation. He published these radiant descriptions of ancient Judea in the dismal years of the captured recruits. The youth of the ghetto, who had been poring over Talmudic folios, fell eagerly upon this little book which breathed the perfumes of Sharon and Carmel. They read it in secret. To read a novel openly was not a safe thing in those days, and their hearts expanded with rapture over the enchanting idyls of the time of King Hezekiah, the portrayal of tumultuous Jerusalem and peaceful Bethlehem. They sighed over the fate of the lovers Amnon and Tamar, and in their flight of imagination were carried far away from painful reality. The naive literary construction of the plot was of no consequence to the reader who tasted a novel for the first time in his life. The naivety of the plot was in keeping with the naive, artificially reproduced language of the prophet Isaiah and the biblical annals which intensified the illusion of the antiquity. Several years after the publication of his Love of Zion, when social currents had begun to stir Russian Jewry, Mapp began his five-volume novel of contemporary life under the title Ait Zabua, The Speckled Bird or the Hypocrite, 1857-1869. In his naive diction, which is curiously out of harmony with the complex plot in sensational French style, the author pictures the life of an obscure Lithuanian townlet, the Kahal bosses who hide their misdeeds beneath the cloak of piety, the fanatical rabbis, the tattoos of the Pale of Settlement who persecute the champions of enlightenment. As an offset against these shadows of the past, Mapp lovingly paints the barely visible shoots of the new life, the maskil, who strives to reconcile religion and science, the misty figure of Jewish youth who goes to the Russian school in the hope of serving his people, the profile of Russian Jewish intellectuals and the captains of industry from among the rising Jewish plutocracy. Toward the end of his life, Mapu returned to his historical novel and in the transgression of Samaria, Ashmat Shomnon, 1865, he attempted through a picture of ancient Hebrew life during the declining years of the Northern Kingdom. But this novel, appearing as it did at the height of the cultural movement, failed to produce the powerful effect of his Ahabat Zion, although its charming biblical diction enraptured the lovers of Melitza. The noise of the new Jewish life with its constantly growing problems 
invaded the precincts of literature, and even the poets were impelled to take sides in the burning questions of the day. The most important poet of that era, Judah Life Gordon, 1830-1892, who began by composing biblical epics and moralistic fables, soon entered the field of intellectual poetry and became the champion of enlightenment and the trenchant critique of old-fashioned Jewish life. As far back as 1863, while active as a teacher at a crown school in Lithuania, he composed his Marseillaise of Enlightenment, Hakiza Amni, Awake My People. In it he sang of the sun shedding its rays over the land of Eden, where the neck of the enslaved was freed from the yoke, and where the modern Jew was welcomed with a brotherly embrace. The poet calls upon his people to join the ranks of her fellow countrymen, the hosts of cultured Russian citizens who speak the language of the land, and offers his Jewish contemporaries the brief formula, be a man on the street and a Jew in the house, i.e., be a Russian in public and a Jew in private life. Gordon himself defined his function in the work of Jewish regeneration to be that of exposing the inner ills of the people, of fighting rabbinical orthodoxy and the tyranny of ceremonialism. This carping tendency, which implies a condemnation of the whole historic structure of Judaism, manifested itself as early as 1868 in his Songs of Judah, Shire Yehuda, in strophes radiant with the beauty of the Hebrew diction. To live by soulless rites has to do been taught, to swim against life and the lifeless letter to keep, to be dead upon earth and in heaven alive, to dream while awake and to speak while asleep. During the 70s, Gordon joined the ranks of the official agents of enlightenment. He removed to St. Petersburg and became secretary of the society for the diffusion of enlightenment. The new Hebrew periodical Ha Shahar published several of his contemporary epics in which he vented his wrath against petrified rabbinism. He portrays the misery of a Jewish woman who is condemned to enter married life at the bidding of the marriage broker without love and without happiness or he describes the tragedy of another woman whose future is wrecked by a dot over the eye. He lashes furiously the orthodox spiders, the official leaders of the community, who catch the young pioneers of enlightenment in the meshes of Kahal authority, backed by police force. Climbing higher upon the ladder of history, the poet registers his protest against the predominance of the spiritual over the worldly elements in the whole evolution of Judaism. He assails the prophet Jeremiah, who, in beleaguered Jerusalem, preaches submission to the Babylonians and strict obedience to the law. The prophet, dressed up in the garb of a contemporary Orthodox rabbi, was to be exhibited as a terrifying incarnation of the soulless formula, law above life. The implication is obvious. The power of orthodoxy must be broken and Jewish life must be secularized. 
but while unmasking the old, Gordon could not fail to perceive the sore spots in the new enlightened generation. He saw the flight of the educated youth from the Jewish camp, its ever-growing estrangement from the national tongue in which the poet uttered his songs, and the cry of anguish burst from his lips, For whom do I labor? It seemed to him that the rising generation, detached from the fountainhead of Jewish culture, would no more be able to read the songs of Zion, and that the poet's rhymes were limited in their appeal to the last handful of worshippers of the Hebrew muse. Who knows, but I am the last singer of Zion, and you are the last who my songs understand. These lines were penned on the threshold of the new era of the 80s. The exponents of Jewish self-criticism lived to see not only the horrors of the pogroms, but also the misty dawn of the national movement, and he could comfort himself with the conviction that he was destined to be the singer for more than one generation. The question, for whom do I labor, was approached and solved in a different way by another writer, whose genius expanded with the increasing years of his long life. During the first years of his activity, Shalom Jacob Abramovich, born 1836, tried his strength in various fields. He wrote Hebrew essays on literary criticism, Mishpat Shalom, 1859, adapted books on natural science written in modern language, Toldot HaTeba, Natural History, 1862, composed a social tendency roman under the title Fathers and Children, Ha Abot Ve Ha Banim, 1868, but all this left him dissatisfied. Pondering over the question, for whom do I labor, he came to the conclusion that his labors belonged to the people at large, to the downtrodden masses, instead of being limited to the educated classes who understand the national tongue. A profound observer of Jewish conditions in the Pale, he realized that the concrete life of the masses should be portrayed in their living daily speech in the Yiddish vernacular, which was treated with contempt by nearly all the masculine of that period. Accordingly, Abramovich began to write in the dialect of the people under the assumed pen name of Mendele Moke Shvorim, Mendele the bookseller. Choosing his subject from the life of the lower classes, he portrayed the periods of Jewish society and their oppressors. Those Kleine Menschele, a humble man, the life of Jewish beggars and vagrants, Fischke the groomer, Fischke the cripple, and the immense cobweb which had been spun around the destitute masses by the contractors of the meat tax and their accomplices, the alleged benefactors of the community, the taxe or the bande stot balle toivos, the meat tax or the gang of town benefactors. His trenchant satire on the text hit the mark, and the author had reason to fear the ire of those who were hurt to the quick by his literary shafts. He had to leave the town of Berdichev, in which he resided at the time, and removed to Zitomir. Here he wrote in 1873 one of his ripest works, The Mayor, or Prevention of Cruelty to Animals.
Declare. In his allegorical narrative, he depicts a homeless mayor, the personification of the Jewish masses, which is pursued by the bosses of the town, who do not allow her to graze on the common pasture lands with the town cattle, and who set street loafers and dogs at her heels. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the government, cannot make up its mind whether the mayor should be granted equal rights with the native horses or should be left unprotected, and the matter is submitted to a special commission. In the meantime, certain horsemen from among the communal benefactors jump upon the back of the unfortunate mayor, beat and torment her well nigh to death, and drive her for their pleasure until she collapses. Leaving the field of polemical allegory, Abramovich published the humorous description of the travels of Benjamin III, Masyot Benjamin HaShalish, 1878, portraying a Jewish Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, who make an overseas journey to the mystical river Sembation on the way from Berdichev to Kiev. A subtle observation of existing conditions combined with a profound analysis of the problems of Jewish life, artistic power matched with publicistic skill, such are the salient feature of the first phase of Abramovich's literary activity. In the following period, beginning with the 80s, his literary creations exhibit greater artistic harmony in their content. As far as their linguistic garb is concerned, they combine the Yiddish vernacular with the Hebrew national tongue, which are employed side by side by our author as the vehicles of his thought and reach at his hand an equally high state of perfection. End of section 17.